Trauma. It's a word that you've probably heard thrown around quite a bit, but what is trauma, really? My name is Shanna White, but you can call me Shan. I'm a psychologist, and defining trauma is a pretty big part of my day-to-day life. But my job goes beyond providing a dictionary description of what trauma is, because that's just the tip of the iceberg, as they say. No, my job is to define trauma, to highlight its impacts, and most importantly, to help those who've lived through it to figure out how to thrive beyond it. I've spent years working with children, adolescents and adults trying to guide them through the process of recovering from complex trauma. Needless to say, I've seen and heard a lot and now you will too. But first, a trigger warning. This podcast deals with some pretty heavy topics including domestic violence, substance abuse, mental illness, crimes against children, self-harm, sexual abuse, multi-generational trauma, and suicide. If you don't think you're in the right headspace to deal with any of these topics right now, please cut yourself some slack, take a deep breath, and come back another day. I'll be here. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and elders on all the lands on which we work and meet. I appreciate the significant place Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders hold, and I identify them as the first Australians. I value and celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, culture and future and I'm committed to supporting reconciliation through speaking the truth, pursuing justice and creating opportunities to heal together. I pay my deep respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present and acknowledge all Aboriginal children, young people, families and staff who I provide services to now and in the future. I embrace and commit to the spirit of work and self-determination, empowerment and reconciliation. Welcome back, everybody, to the Trauma Tales. Today, we've been um, joined by Benji. Hi, Benji. Thanks for coming in today. Hey there. So tell me a little bit about a time where you experienced trauma. Yeah, probably. So there's two. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't discuss one, but one was just coming out. And the other was probably with my HIV diagnosis, which was, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago now. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's only now that I'm starting to unpack all of the, um, I don't want to say crazy, but that's the way that it feels. All the, um, my emotional response to to that I've only started to sort of um understand and unpack a little bit more Mm -hmm. yeah so so let's let's talk about um your coming out um so for a little bit of context if it's all right with you Benji um I was kind of a little bit a part of this story Benji and I have been friends since we were 15? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We're so we're, fucking old, mate. So we've been friends for five years at this point. And uh, I... <laughs> I mean, may, maybe six years, but I mean, it's been a couple. And... Uh, <laughs> we haven't aged a day. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Oh, 
so let's talk about when you came out, um, what was kind of happening, what was going on. Oh, I, wish, I wish that I'd dealt with that a little bit differently. The context of it was that I'd been having some um, probably typical teenage drama with family and rebellious and and all of that. And I'd fell in with this dude who was maybe well, 15 years older than me. And when you're 18, that's quite a bit older. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've come to understand over time is just how much further ahead he was. Like, because when I look at myself about now talking with people I know who are sort of 18 or 19, you, are, you do become, I guess, a community elder a little bit to people because mm. you've experienced life a bit differently and come out and all those kind of things. And so um, there was all that bubbling around on the back, in the background and then I was also having a bit of a tough time with um, my old man because we are just very different people. But as I get older, the more I realise we're exactly the same. But at that point we were. Oof. I know it's awful. <laughs> It's not awful because he's a good dude, but um, it just, um, you know, there was all that ordinary stuff going on. Mm. And so then I told mum, but it was I, I dealt with it very poorly and I regret it. Like I told her over the phone from a balcony at his house rather than sitting down and having a conversation. The, uh, the boyfriend's house. Yeah. 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 And I was on the phone and initially she didn't believe me. She thought I was just in, like, the background to that was that, We'd done all the kind of, um, I guess, the teenage things where you're writing notes and I was a hormonal boy, so there was a couple of notes to some other hormonal boys and just little things like that that mum had sort of picked up and maybe some browser history on the internet, for example, because it, uh, yeah. it was only just coming in at that point. And so I'd been put on, not on blast, but I'd been sort of confronted with it previously around, well, what's this and why am I reading this and what's this you're looking at? And, and all of that. And I think, um, you know, it's the type of thing that you can't really communicate to you already. And a lot of people, I think, will grapple with that a, a little mm -hmm. bit. Go, oh, well, you've got this letter, you've got this thing, why is it such a problem to talk about it? And you just, you're scared, do you know what I mean? Because it's yes. one of those things that, um, you know, it, yeah, it, it worries you that your parents are going to, or family will stop loving you. And so one of the things that, the parents said was, all right, well, don't tell your father and I'll tell your sister. And my sister was five years younger than me and we'd been sort of brought up with, oh, well, you know, you can tell me anything. But then you have this big thing that you need to unload and the response was, oh, let's not. And I, and I understand why that was the response. Like, I get it. I get that that parent was sort of the... Um, was kind of steering the ship a little bit and needed to sort of put in place things that she knew was going to work because she wanted to protect me from any adverse reactions and all of that. But just I'm kind of like, well, what's the point of coming out if you're still shh? If I still have to stay here. You know? Yeah. yeah. And so that was quite hard. And retrospectively, I think the way that I dealt with it um, probably wasn't conducive to a better um, response, but you live in your life. Do you know what I mean? Like I'd never mm -hmm. have those kind of conversations over the phone again. It'd be a conversation where I sit down and, and have a proper chat. Um, but that was a bit unsettling because I'm like, well, what's the point? And I've done this big thing that I've been actively denying for a number of years now. 
thinking that there's going to be this big freedom or a positive response or just something, but it was very, we don't talk about that or it's got to be hidden or all those kind of things. And so that I think is important for context when we get to that other thing that we're mm. going to talk about in a minute in terms of the, the diagnosis. So from memory, because hmm. it, it was it was a couple more years than five or six. A couple. Just, just a couple. Um, you were quite um, sort of living a double life almost because to to us, to your closest friends, you were out and um, you were exploring that space of yourself and then would would almost put the mask back on when you went home um, and that was always like a bit of a struggle for you and and sort of drove you to spend more time away from from home and from the people that you weren't out with. I think that's a very, um, yeah, very um, significant point because I, I now that you say that, I'm like, well, for the period after, while there was a bit of discomfort with all of that, it was definitely retreating away rather than sort of going into the to, to the family home to sort of have those conversations. It was definitely the coping strategy to kind of push away from it rather than sort of embrace it. Mm. This episode of The Trauma Tales is brought to you by Dr. Olga Laval and Associates, award-winning providers of psychological services, including telehealth and phone consultations, empowering people to make meaningful changes to their lives. For more information, please go to www.olgalaval.com. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I can't help but think about um, many occasions where um, we would talk about and, and the circle we moved in, like our group of friends was a really, we were a motley crew, um, but there was a, a lot of um, LGBTQI people in our, just our little group and in various stages of their coming out, whether it be, whether they were, um, whether they even wanted it acknowledged, even with us. You know, I remember there was a couple of people who weren't even out with us um, for a long, long time. And I remember us, we were we were a really insular little group. We were so supportive of each other. Um, and even those who weren't out, we were like, okay, when you're ready, you know, you'll... I, I see you, but you'll be fine. Like... Yeah, when you're ready. And then they would um, eventually, you know, come out to us and, and we'd be like, you know, I'm so proud of you. That's awesome, but duh. Yeah, thanks for telling me, but I'm not deaf, dumb, I'm blind. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, and then I think as happens, you know, we were teenagers and, and young adults, then we all kind of, um, you know, the, the weight of having to then be an adult happens and we all drifted apart and, and sort of off on our own adventures. And then what happened for you? Well, I am... Um... Yeah, so I I stayed in that relationship that I was in for a few years more till I think I was in my sort of early to mid-20s and because it was comfortable um, retrospectively and, and I think it shielded me from some of that familiar, what I felt like was family judgment or, or, or it was, 
my parents have never rejected. Like I'm very lucky, you know, in that um, my parents have accepted me as I as I am. Doesn't mean that it's not been without its um, without its stuff though. And I just mm-hmm. that it, it, there was a bit of division there or, or an inability to sort of understand one another. And so that continued for a few years after that. And then um, that relationship broke down. And then then I found myself being a little bit closer with the family again after that. And there's a, um, there's a you might have seen it, there's a, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a, a theory or a model of coming out that I've seen. And so there's like four or five stages of it. The first one is like, right, we've come out, so everybody knows that you've got to be gay. And then sort of the last stage of it is, well, it's not the thing that's got to be dominated. You've, you've sort of integrated it into yourself rather than going, all right, what you need to know about me more than anything else is that I'm gay. And then over time in four or five stages or something like that. And so I think okay. I started to come out sort of the back end of that where it didn't need to be the be all and end all. But I mean, we had some really challenging things. Like we get the Sydney Star Observer, for example, which was the gay rag and just a, um, you know, community newspaper that had come out, I don't know whether it was weekly or fortnightly. And so you'd go around to your, um, well, it wouldn't have been JB Hi-Fi though, but you go to some of those venues and you'd pick up a free one because it didn't cost you anything. And I can remember, like, I'd sit out the back of mum and dad's and read the paper and have a cigarette. And I'd left one of the Sydney Star Observers there. Now, there was a little bit of nudity because the gay men like a Speedo, do you know what I mean? <laughs> So there was lots of, do you know what I mean? That like the gay party scene with muscle boys and shirts off and all of that. And I can remember mum coming into me, oh, don't leave that out there. That one, like that. Um, you know, and like that's still there a bit, I think. Like when we have conversations with dad, when I, I can remember having one a couple of years ago about um, sort of being an out man at work and his advice to me was, well, just don't tell people. And interesting point of view because I feel like anybody that has met me might suspect that of me if they've spent an extended amount of time with Three me. Minutes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, how dare you? I, um, <laughs> you know, so that was interesting to me and it's just a different outlook. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's yeah. coming at it from a sort of protective point of view. Well, you don't need to, you know, outwardly ostracise yourself or you don't need to create or you don't need to have this being part of you know your work dynamic if you if you don't want to and for me the opposite side of that is look I understand that protective thing I get where you're coming from but also shame based or Mm. has the capacity to build shame if you've got to sort of hide it away or not can't freely and so you know as I said to him was well Dad, I'd rather be hated than what I am for love for what I'm not. Um, nice. You know, and that's just a different point of view that we have that I don't think he and I think it's a generational thing. I think it's growing up in a small country town. I think it's not having a lot of gay people around you. But but it's weird because, you you know, that like so certain things sort of stand out in your mind from your family. Like I can remember one night and I was not even involved in the conversation, but I can remember being in my bedroom and there was something on the TV. Dad loved the ABC or something, so it was probably a same-sex relationship 
Um, and he goes, oh, they're lesbians, and now they want to have bloody kids. Unbelievable. You know, and just so this commentary around that about not sort of getting that or not, you know, and so you know that he wasn't operating from an inherent place of understanding or or acceptance. And so that has kind of malignant um coloured our relationship, um, even though I have no doubt my dad lo- loves me. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So how, how did he... How did you come out to your dad? I didn't. I didn't. Mum took the control of that when I was when I came out to her and said, "Oh well, I'll tell your father." And so, Dad and I have never really sat down and had a conversation about it. Really, really. Yeah. So y- your mum told your mum came out yep. to your dad. Um, <laughs> came out to your dad. Um, right. You know what I mean? And that's because that's Mum's sort of thing. The thing where. You know, because there's a little bit of alcoholism in our family, um, and so I think she was worried about some unpredictable behaviours that might sort of pop up, or, or predictable behaviours that might pop up. And so I think it was her way of maintaining control and safety to for all, for everyone, for her as yeah. well. And so that she'd been around and, and seen it and knew what was going on. So for her, that was her having control of it. Felt like the safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which I can't really fault, but it did sort of, oh, well, what have I come out for if it's going to be shame? So Dad and I have never really had, uh, like, it's, like it's acknowledged, you know, between us, but just it's not a dominant part of the conversation. And I wonder whether that response has driven that or contributed to that statement of affairs where, or, or, or you know, how it is that I don't um, sort of really actively engage with Dad around any of that. So when you were just talking about, you know, when you had the conversation with your dad about not telling people at work that you were gay, like mm. just don't tell them, that almost it 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 kind of really landed. It really resonated with me with conversations that uh, I've had um, where you know you, you told uh, or I've been told, you know, don't don't wear a short skirt and and you know don't display your body don't look a certain way, you know. Um, Being told don't cry at work. I said, yeah. that, I said that to my sister once and regretted it instantly. Yep, I've been that's, told don't cry at work. Basically don't don't be a female because that's not the accepted thing to be. So it, it's, you know, not dissimilar, you know, don't don't be gay um, out at work and or anywhere really. And it's like, well. Have it, have it there, but just don't. You know, don't have the push-up bar on. Do you know what I mean? Don't make it there so everybody can see. Like it's yeah. be there, but just just cover it up and yeah, yeah. Lest we, you know, just distract people or upset people because we exist. Um, yeah, it's it. That's it. Yeah, that's what I sort of resonated for me because I was like, I've had those conversations. I've been told those things yeah. myself. People won't take you seriously if you're, you know, you wear too much makeup or you you look a certain way or you wear a tight dress. They won't take you seriously. It's like, well, it doesn't change, like, my ability to do my job. I'm still actually just as capable in tracksuit pants as I am in a dress. And, and when you hear things like that, do you feel like you've got to then um, be better do you know what I mean? Like it, like it kind of it pushes you forward a little bit to go, all right, well, if people are going to be thinking about that, 
then I've got to make sure that I'm really good at my job so that that's what they're talking about, not that anything else? Or do you sort of subscribe to that um, advice that's kind of given? You know, I used to subscribe. I used to um, sort of dress in a certain way that I thought was, you know, appropriate for everybody else and what sort of suited everybody else. And um, whereas I think turning 35 for me was... Oh, see, now I'm giving away our ages. You, you, oops. Oops, a daisy. Um, 25, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> I mean, more than six, but what else? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, turning 35, I just, I really, and heaps of people told me when you turn 30, when you turn 35, you'll, you'll get a, I don't care. But I literally woke up one day and went, oh, I don't give a fuck. I'm wearing whatever I want. You know, I'm, I'm obviously dressed as a professional, but, you know, if I want to wear, because I once got told, oh, you shouldn't wear all black because it makes people think that, you know, that you, it's it's too dark to wear every day. And I was like, but I like black. It all matches. Black looks like, good, right? And you don't have to match colours there. <laughs> Yeah, I just had this moment where I was like, why am I giving a shit? Why am I giving so much of my thought processes and free rent in my head away to other people who aren't me and aren't doing my job? And you know what? They can all just shut up. I'm busy. And ever since then, I just didn't care. The only people I sort of care about their opinions is like the the people that are with me. So like I, when I, when I'm, in clinic, for example, I, I wear suits and I wear tailored clothes and I dress up because um, it's it's an expression of my dedication to what's happening for them. It's not about, um, you know, dressing up or looking better than anyone. I want people to know that um, I'm a professional but that I'm dedicated to what's happening for them and in this space sort of thing. But, yeah, that just sort of resonated for me. So um, I, I know this is going to be super random but I want to include it. Yeah, go I, w- I want you to tell a little story for me. I want a meat pie story. <laughs> yes, I want you to tell the meat pie story, please. So I was standing out the front. Oh, I was standing out the front of my high school. You can edit that bit out. Um, and so I'm standing out the front of the school and they just installed a set of traffic lights. It was new. And so like a pedestrian thing across the front. And there's this woman. And she was standing there and she had a cream blazer on and she was like, she was smart. Like you were saying, she was, you know, whether it was a job interview or work or something, this cream blazer. And this car goes past and out of nowhere, this fucking meat pie comes flying through the air, right? And it hits this woman, right? And the thing is, when something like that happens in front of you, (laughs) like the meat pie kind of art, gracefully in the air like it just do you know what I mean like it was almost slow-mo like you see you watching it go down and bang and it hits this woman in the side of the face and the weirdest thing about it right if you were being rat bags driving around out in the front of your school and you do something like that like you would hear the biggest almighty cheer from the car right like you would just do you know what I mean because you're rat bag kid you yeah look away nothing just nothing it was almost like they'd taken a bite out of the pie and then thrown it out the window thought nothing of it and just kept driving and yeah the woman was mortified it was awful newspaper under arm but yeah the meat pie bang smack of the 
smack it. <laughs> and just, <laughs> it, it, no, it just bang. <gasps> Thank yeah, you. And that story morphed into a life of its own after a time. It like it just did. <laughs> It did. I remember I was I was at the cafe and you were when you'd left school and that happened, you walked straight to the cafe and your face was just joyful. You just don't see it. You don't see him sorry about it. And you you told us the story. And it was almost like you were in shock, like it was you. And you were like, oh, that poor woman, should we go get her some tea time? If you're rocking up to a jump interview with gravy on your place, oh, I just don't want to start your face. <laughs> oh, far out. Oh, and then it, listening to you retell the story over time, like it, it totally evolved into this, a new parts were put in like the yeah, way yeah, he yeah. started with the the pie gently arced gracefully <laughs> through the air dun, 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 you know we said like with like a soundtrack going through <laughs> oh, oh breathe <laughs> oh god I love talking to you you make me laugh so hard oh. at that time no my <sighs> Yeah, you know, around there when I was being a rat bag. And then <sighs> and then my parents would have been shocked to discover at the end of year 12 that I had like 55 days absence because I'd just not bothered to go to school. Or like that's a full term. Mm -hmm. 10 or 11 weeks. And yeah. you, only get, you only get three terms in year 12. <laughs> oh, you are a rat bag. I didn't know that. Although actually it makes sense now. Yeah, but they didn't know and I thought didn't think it was going to be on the report and then it was and they were just shell-shocked and <laughs> shell-shocked. They're like, who are you? Like, a, you know, who are you? And Because, you know, that's not how they had wanted me to be, and, you know, but you make your choices and that's the choices I made and it's all right now. But at the time I think it was pretty, um, you know, and I think it was probably, you know, one of those things that played into... Um, the response around the sexuality are, well, is he doing all this because he's gay? And maybe there was an element of that to it in terms of discomfort at school or wherever and trying to respond to it in the best way that I could with, what would you call them, Shannon, maybe maladaptive coping strategies maybe? you know, oh, It's like you've been listening to a psych or something. I know, I know. <laughs> Don't fucking listen to any of them, let me tell you. I'm just <laughs> yeah. Look, you might be right about that. That's all I'm going to give you. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. That's it. I'll just, I'll just take my purse and bust it out when I need a little bit of confidence boost. <laughs> oh, yes, but, but, but again, it's with time that you kind of reflect on that and go, all right, well, there was a lot going on. Mm. And, you know, you try to be kind to yourself in reflecting on it, I think. But I think that that speaks to how um, destabilised I was feeling around that and the way that my own feelings were about it. Because when they would have those conversations about the computer that they'd found, the, you know, xxx.gay.com or whatever it was, um, 
you know, in the letters to the other people. Like, there was no denying it. It was there. Mm. And you could see a sense of distress and confusion from mum in particular in responding to it. And so you kind of carry that with you and you, you learn, all right, well, this is probably not an okay thing or this is probably not, I've probably got to keep a lid on this for a while. And then it just got to a point where I'm like, well, I'm sick of lying about this and let's just get it over and done with. And so I picked that easy way on the phone and then mum was like, oh, well, you know, let's deal with it that way. And I understand why she did, you know, it's about safety for her as well, but also safety for me. And that was just the pathway that she chose, but it was just incredibly grating because I'm like, well, you've been asking about this for years with these little notes that you've been searching through my bag for or, or whatever. Mm. <laughs> and here I am talking and it's almost a state of disbelief. And I think it was, and you know, and I talk with mum about it and, you know, he said, anybody that's been with you for three minutes. I don't think my mum was like that. I think that she just looked at me and said, that's and that's as far as it goes. Well, that's you know, mm. not, well, this is gay or, or mm. that. It's you mean Benji? Thank you. Thank you. So, she, yeah, that's right. So <laughs> she looked at you and went, well, this is, this is just Benji. Thanks. That's right. And that was absolutely the thanks for reminding me that. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think she just looked and went, well, this is just who he is. And I love my son. And that's, you know, and yeah, I'm, I'm really, really lucky because I can remember at that time having a conversation with another couple of friends of ours who were all from that group um, who weren't together at the time, but one of them um, had a, I want to say Eastern European background or something like that, maybe a Catholic or an Orthodox family mm -hmm. and having a conversation with her because my worldview had been, because of my experiences, oh, well, your parents will just still love you because that's how life is. But that had not been her experience in that family with that background, like her grandmother. Like I just said, oh, well, she'll come around over time, won't she? Like I'm genuinely confused by this because my like, no, 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 that's what happens. Like love will lead the way, right? Like... <laughs> Um, but that had not been her experience of it. And so that was quite startling at about that time to sort of hear that and hear that different perspective because now when I look at it, I go, all right, well, I had things okay. You know, like yeah. what's an ideal, could have been a bit different. We're all human and we all make mistakes. But... On the, um, on the scale of things, yeah, yeah really. Yeah, and, and that's why it's difficult sometimes to sort of conceptualise it as trauma a little bit because I think... Um, when I think about trauma, um, you know, you, you you think of those really obviously traumatic things, mm. you know, being subject to violence or threats of violence or you know witnessing some violence and um, and those kind of things, and you think of those as traumatic. But I guess if you think of conceptualize it as just being something that's a bit emotionally overwhelming for you that you can't sort of psychologically process rather than oh well this huge thing of gravity um then it probably was a bit traumatic i think but mm. it just feels a bit self-indulgent talk about it that way um because of the things i've just mentioned you know that at the end of the yeah. day it wasn't a terrible response and, and comparative, oh, well, it's not real trauma because that's real trauma over there, you know. That's what trauma looks like. This is not trauma. This is just distress or, you know. This episode of The Trauma Tales is brought to you by Cognitive Behavioural Education.
providing training and supervision for people working with people who experience trauma. If you work with people, you know how challenging it can be sometimes and how you can end up having the wrong end of someone's day or having to deal with their trauma. CBE's training and supervision services can upskill and support you and your team to manage, de-escalate and thrive in these situations. For more information, go to www.cbe.net.au. But, but like we, <clears throat> there's, there's different types of trauma, as you said, and there's that, that big capital T trauma and they're, you know, the big things like um, assaults, witnessing things, being in car accidents, that sort of stuff where it's, where it's big and there's an immediate and, and obvious threat to, to life. And then there's um, what I call little T traumas. And these are things that can often be more insidious and kind of, um, sort of dragging out across time like when we have to have for example if we have to have like invasive procedures and we have to have multiple medical interventions um you know um illnesses like an illness can be a really insidious form of ongoing trauma it can be you know even even stuff like um having to move and and what the world's going through what we're going through right now um covid has been a huge collective trauma and it's a series of things over time um so that little t stuff but i wanted to ask you about a specific time um when you were diagnosed with hiv mm. tell me about that That was pretty rough, I gotta say. I, uh, you know, because it's um, like I missed the Grim Reaper ad campaign. Like that was the eighties, and yeah, I, we're not that old. I wasn't quite old enough to to see that and understand what that was about. You know, and um, but I think you know, and you you've mentioned this um, when we've been together on a, on occasion, a collective trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Indigenous communities might feel it in terms of what they've experienced. And I think for the gay community um, or LGBTIQA+, plus, I don't want to miss anyone, um, the, the rainbow people, um, I, I there is that collective trauma, do you know what I mean? Like it was yeah. in the 90s, that 97, I think it was, that in the last state of Australia, um, homosexuality was decriminalised in Tasmania. Really, and even then, it was a fight because the the uh, activist down there, I think it was Rodney Croom, had been to the UN saying that this Tasmania, because Tasmania was a malingerer, they were like the other the mainland was sort of coming round. Like I think in New South Wales in the late seventies, um, might have been the eighties, um, yeah, because seventy nine was the first Mardi Gras, and yeah, so it was still there. Do you know what I mean? Like at ninety seven, I was a teenager. You know, yeah, we were. You know, and so it was still illegal in some parts of Australia as we were entering high school. Um, and so, you know, I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so it took, and it, you know, fighting tooth and nail. It was only, I think, the federal government legislated over the top of Tasmania, which meant that they sort of had to comply. They were kind of forced into it. Um, and violence, and I've been very fortunate in my life. I've not really um, experienced violence and and all of that, and then. Yeah, with the sorry, back to the to the HIV. So, um, I th I think 
like I went in and I had an STI and then she's poking around my glands going, oh, well, this doesn't, this feels a bit, and I think she's looking at me going, oh, this is going to be a bit dicey, this series of tests that we've got to do. And I think um, there are a couple of things retrospectively. I don't think I had, like, risk is a really difficult thing to quantify, you know. Sometimes in the work that I'm doing, I have to talk about people and how there is a risk that this might happen, you know, but there's a risk that when I drive out on the road today that I'm going to have a car accident, Mm. you know. It's an inherently risky activity, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to eventuate. And so I think the sex has been a bit like that. And I can remember one of the doctors sort of subsequent to and when she was referring me off when I moved somewhere, had said, oh, well, was very surprised about his diagnosis, even though he'd been engaging in high-risk activity. And I'm like, don't you fucking judge me. I, I, <laughs> but I, that's something that has really stuck to me in that journey, that, that there was potentially disengagement with the risk and you kind of just go, oh, yeah, it'll be all right, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. And you're coming from a generation that's in a weird place because by that point, you know, there are antiretrovirals and people's life expectancy was approaching near normal, uh, provided there was medication and that kind of thing. Um, and you hadn't, you had a sense of this community trauma that we'd experienced when people were dropping dead in the 80s and, and early 90s. And, um, but I had not directly experienced it. I did not know anybody that the only thing I had been exposed to was the sexual health clinic and send somebody up the road and he talking about taking 12 pills a day. And that was not my reality when it happened to me. It was just one pill. That was that. And, um, yeah, and so I had a pretty dark time for a while there. I can remember I was sitting at home and um, visiting mum and I wanted to talk to her about it, um, but I just couldn't. And I can remember I, like, because I don't have much of a poker face at all, um, sadly, which is entertaining for those watching. But I it mean, really is. it's a bit distressing for me from time to time because I think I've got a good secret. But no, no, everybody knows exactly <laughs> what, exactly <laughs> what is going on in my head. And so I would have been sitting there on the couch, you know, coming home from work or whatever late at night and having a chat with her. And um, yeah, really distressed. And I can remember her looking over and doing this double take and she knew that something wasn't right, but that I wasn't able to talk about it. And so I didn't talk about it with them for a couple of years. Um, just kind of went on my own thing. And then, like, I was diagnosed in June, July. I think we're, I think it's 11 years, about now, actually. Um, and I think... I think my internal response was to busy myself with something else, you know, and go, all right, well, rather than try and engage with this emotional traumatic response that I'm going to have, I'm going to go and do this program of study, you know, and that would... Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do this study and I don't know whether it was the right thing to do, whether it was the right thing, but it's what I did Mm -hmm. and I think that it was helpful for me in terms of... um, you know, in the same way now that if I'm having a shit time of it, I might sit down and do some knitting and try and, you know, let those thoughts bubble away in the background doing that. So I think it was a bit like that, that there was there was a, a tool to not have it be so consuming. Um, mm-hmm. But I think another part of it was because of that stigma associated with the illness, uh, I thought to myself, oh, well, if I'm going to have to, if this is what I am now, then I'm going to have to do something else so that I'm not, this stereotype or I'm not this, you know, 
And so I think I did that, and I joke about it now in terms of scrubbing my scrubbing myself clean of my HF HIV with a degree, you know, and around mm. is how I reflect on it a little bit now. But there was probably an element of that to it okay. in that highly stigmatized condition. Oh well, maybe I can be this this profession over here, which has a certain gravitas. Maybe maybe if I do that, then I won't just be that stereotypical poofter with AIDS, you know. And sorry about my language, but do you know? That's but I think, okay. but I think that's probably um, part of the thought process, even if it wasn't um, explicitly at the forefront of my mind. I think it was that internal stuff that sort of drove that, that I maybe didn't have a clear conceptualisation of at that point, what, what mm. I was doing and why I was doing that. And so, yeah, I didn't talk about it with mum and my sister for years and just sort of kept it to myself and just plugged away and, um, you know, started to do some study and um, was worried that I was having some kind of personality disturbance as a result of trauma for a while um, because... Yeah, it was just like I was working in a retail job at the time. It was, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it was low skilled work. And I'd previously tried to engage in a business degree, but not done very well at that because I wasn't really engaged with it. And so it felt like this real dramatic thing, even though, but another part of it was that when I was 10, I used to say, right, well, I want to be this particular profession. Um, and then just got lost somewhere along the way because of everything else, I think, and then sort of returned to it at a later point. So I think it had always been there. So as much as it always was, oh, going to study this off me now, um, I think there was also an element of, well, fuck me. Um, you're approaching 30. You've got this other thing going on. Um, you haven't done that other thing that you wanted to do, why don't you give that a go now? Because you're not getting any younger. You've really only got one chance. I think it was a catalyst for change mm. as much as it was maybe an element of, well, maybe if I wrap myself up in this degree, then it will take some of the stigma or the internal self-loathing and judgment I was feeling as a result of the, the health condition. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. and Sorry, That was a lot there. <laughs> yeah. No, it, uh, no I know. I... I, I see that I, I get that makes that actually makes perfect sense because and you know for for context your degree and your profession is and I think the word you used was gravitas it is um uh, it, it is people would associate a prestige with it do you know what I mean Sometimes. yes yes there is there is a significant amount of prestige associated with with your profession and and what you do so I I, I think it's really interesting how you know in somewhere in the back there it's like I, I can balance it out and and cleanse this by doing this and now sort of 10 or 11 years and I finished the study and I've been doing that work for a couple of years now and I enjoy it and I'm glad I do it I don't don't, um, you know, regret those choices. You know, it, it is what it is. But I do look back a little bit and go, oh, I wish, wish I'd worked a bit harder, a bit earlier at coming to peace with that because otherwise you get through this journey and you know, and I knew kind of to some level that that's what I was doing a little bit and it was not going to self-resolve because this is not going to make it go away. No. I, I, I wish that I had... Um, 
tried a little bit harder to balance out those things where you can have the study but also then still work on that internal stuff rather than sort of push it on to this external validation. Oh, mm-hmm. if I can get this external validation, then maybe the internal stuff will resolve and it doesn't, for me, always work that way just because somebody else approves of it doesn't mean that you then feel the same way that other people might. And mm. so I wish, I, I think that I could have, or if I had my way again, I would have com- more concurrently worked on that stuff a bit harder as, in conjunction with the study. You know, yeah, so yeah. when I get to the end of the study and the work, and I'm kind of like, oh, well, that didn't make that go away, did it? <laughs> oh, it's not going to make it go away. But there is as well, and and I don't, I think it's really, yeah, it's important to sort of note that in what you do as um, uh, gravitas as it is, you have actually positioned yourself to focus on the service of others so you don't actually um there's lots of different ways you can do your job Mm. and that you know um Mm. very um higher order professional work but you've chosen to take on a field that is uh about serving others so there's i wonder if there's a even a little bit of um you know doing doing better for others than sort of you've experienced you know now that you've been a bit at the bottom and experienced emotional um turmoil and and experienced low those lows to sort of re-engage in in community and with other people and to serve other people and i can remember at the time while i was going through the public health clinics shout out to the public health system in australia because i've never it's been great very lucky we're Uh, lucky you know and so you go to those community clinics that you might be aware of that are sort of off the hospital a bit or linked to the hospital um and you know you don't it's only now that i've thought of that as a community-based initiative you know you would kind of refer to it as a health thing or a hospital or you know and i I can tell you absolutely that i was awful to deal with um (laughs) stages to the point that one of the doctors actually said to me what are you going to have another conniption are you and I looked at her and I said, conniption. That's a great word, though. Come on. I will show you a conniption in a minute if you keep talking like that. <laughs> was what I was thinking, but I swallowed it. I swallowed it and I thought about it. And she's quite right. There was some, you know, there was some trauma responses. Mm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. To, to, to that that would have made it difficult to deal with. And whatever they thought of my high maintenance ways (laughs) they were prepared to help and support me even if I was difficult to deal with and so I think that that has something that has sort of um impacted the way that I've pursued my career you know and trying to link in with those services that um give people a bit of support when they're down and out you know I do well thank you so much Benji that was Awesome. Um, it was amazing to talk to you about this stuff. We don't get to talk enough, so we'll probably now stop recording and then just yeah, sure. chat for another couple of hours. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the podcast today. That's all right. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today on The Trauma Tales. 
Now is a good time to go and do some self-care, especially if this tale resonated for you. If you'd like to reach out to The Trauma Tales to be a sponsor of the show or to come onto the show, please email The Trauma Tales, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. This podcast is a production of Shanna White Psychology.